Well, let's go together now to Luke chapter 13. We're continuing our series of messages through our Lord's parables in Luke's gospel. And this one we come to today is the parable of the unfruitful or the barren fig tree. Well, with the invention of the GPS, my life changed for the better. I know God doesn't make mistakes. And so I've often said through the years, when I was assembled in my mother's womb, by God's design, I was not given a good compass. He didn't want me to have the top of the line compass for some reason. Now he did give me a wife with an excellent sense of direction. And so that was a blessing. Keeps you humble too when your wife has a great sense of direction. I remember early in our married life, Joy and I would take these road trips long before GPSs and we'd pull into a service station, get gasoline. Once I circled the pumps, I got confused and I didn't know which way to go back on the road. And so many times early on, very sweetly, Joy would say, Jim, I worry about you. I worry about you. <laughs> like, like, why would you get along if I weren't here? But do you, do you remember some of you driving before there were telephones in the car and driving before there were GPSs and GPS apps? Remember that? We actually used something called maps and uh, you kept those in the glove box. And so if you got lost, you'd pull out an actual map. And if you went to a different part of the United States, you needed to stop and get a map for that region of the country. And you couldn't open it up while you were driving. You would block the whole windshield. So you'd pull over and you'd try to find out, first of all, where am I on this map? And then how do I get to that highway that I need? Very often, though, what we would do is just not worry about the map. We'd stop at a service station and we would ask somebody. And I always looked for an older man. I didn't want a young guy. He might send me off just as a gag the wrong way. He didn't know me. So I wanted an older man who'd been around a while. And I would ask him, sir, can you tell me how to get to Highway 40 from here? And uh, sometimes it was very frustrating because it would be a 27-step set of instructions. And he'd say things like, you know, take the seventh left and your first right and bear by the old oak tree. And remember this, they would say, and if you get to the bridge, you've gone too far. Or if you get to the hospital, you're going, well, there's some landmark that was too far. That's just how we did it back in the day. And so here's the deal, whether it was a, a map or a person, I needed somebody to help me know, am I going the right way or not? Well, spiritually, you and I need the same type of direction don't we? And aren't you glad that God has given us the Bible to give us a map for this life? It's the GPS for our lives to tell us, no, you're on the right way. Keep going that way. Or no, you're off track now. And so the word of God is so vital for us. But the big question is, will we listen to what the word of God is telling us? Will we heed the instructions? When we recognize we're wrong, according to the scriptures, will we change our mind and go with the scripture and change our direction? That's that biblical understanding of repentance. And I bring that up because that's what Jesus talks a lot about in the text we're going to see on our way to our next parable. So let's read about repentance here from Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The first thing I want us to notice is Jesus is telling us here at the beginning, the need for all people to repent. Right out of the gate here, Jesus makes the point of the need for all people to repent. 
Now, Jesus here is responding to a topic that was brought up to him. People were essentially asking him, hey, what about those people that were horribly massacred, massacred in the temple? That's what we see in verse one here. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So they bring up this terrible incident. We don't know anything more about it than what we have right here. But apparently some people had come from Galilee to worship in the temple. Pilate somehow was upset with them for something maybe they had done. I don't know. But he had them slaughtered while they were offering their sacrifices. So their blood, can you imagine it, mingled with the animal sacrifices they were making there. And so there was something, though, about the way they were asking the question that we can tell. By the way, Jesus responds. It seems that they were insinuating that there must have been something particularly bad about these Galileans. That God would, have let, would let them die in such a fashion. So we see it here, verse 2. And he answered them, do you think? that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. And then Jesus answers his own question, no, that's not what's going on here. So let me ask you here, how do you process the calamities in other people's lives? Is there something in you when you see other people suffer, do you have a sense of superiority to them? Do you assume there must be something really bad in their lives if God's letting them go through so much so much adversity in their health or financially or something. Do you, do you think that, wow, I'm glad I'm not like them because I must be living better than them? Maybe you hear about a terrible earthquake somewhere in the world and many people died. And do you somehow think, well, they must have deserved it if God let that happen? Or a building collapses somewhere and a lot of people die. Do you think that must be some kind of judgment on them for some reason? Or somebody's attacked by a shark while out swimming and you, you just draw those negative conclusions about the person. But again, listen to how Jesus responds here. He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So let's pause here for this point. Jesus is making clear that suffering for us is part of our human condition. We know about this since the fall recorded in Genesis chapter three, because of sin on the earth, we all go through difficulties whether you're righteous or unrighteous, whether you're among the faithful or the unfaithful, we all go through difficulties here. And so it would be wrong for us to see somebody else's calamity and just assume the worst about them as if somehow we're better than them. And the Bible is very clear on this. We go to whole books of the Bible, like the book of Job. Here was a man that God was very pleased with, a very righteous man. And yet God, according to his sovereign purposes, let Job suffer tremendously. Job's friends were wrong thinking you must have done something. And yet the whole point of Job is no, that's not how this works. God can allow his righteous ones also to suffer. Or we can look at the sufferings of the apostles. We know Judas, of course, betrayed the Lord, killed himself. Then you have the 11 remaining apostles and they suffered greatly right in the center of God's will, carrying the gospel around the world at their time. They suffered. Even, even John, though not martyred as the rest, still exiled, suffered for the Lord. So we can't draw the conclusion that suffering means that you've done something terrible more than the rest. Now, aren't we glad that sometimes God does deliver us as his children from some troubles? That's why we pray, right? I bet you pray like me. Lord, keep me healthy or keep my family healthy or heal this disease of this person I care for. Protect my family on the road or, or something like that. We, we pray those kind of things. And aren't you glad that God answers those many times? 
Probably millions of times God has answered those prayers and we have no idea. We just have been able to go through without that particular calamity happening to us. But sometimes God does let his faithful children go through suffering and he sustains us in the midst of the suffering. Again, the scripture is clear. True, God can bring judgment in this life with hardship. He can discipline his children with hardship. We know that, but we can't assume that about other people. So let's pause here and let's make the point. We as Christians do not at all embrace the idea of karma. Now they weren't talking about karma here, but it's that same idea here that I can see some bad thing that happened over there, then they must have done something that brought that into their life. So karma is not Christianity. Never try to mix that with your Christianity. It's completely unbiblical. It's a Hindu idea. It's a Buddhist idea. And here's the essential idea of karma that we reject biblically. The idea of karma is what you do will always come back to you. So if you put good things out, then good things will eventually come back to you. You earned it. And if bad things happen to you, it means that somewhere in the past, maybe even one of your previous lives, that that thing has come back to you. It's going to come back. You can't stop it. What you do comes back to you. We don't operate by that. Aren't you glad for grace that we don't always get what we deserve in this life? We, we reject that idea. Now, notice here, Jesus directs our minds to the fact that all people are sinners. So they're saying, hey, what about these Galileans? Weren't they something? And Jesus says, what about you? Yeah, it was a terrible thing that happened to them. They are among the sinful men and women of humanity, but so are you. And so the point Jesus makes now is unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So let's take on that word repent here. What does that mean? I like this definition of repentance. Repentance is the English translation of the Greek term metanoia, which literally means change of mind. Repentance expresses sorrow for the ways in which we have offended God, but it is also much more. Repentance is a change of mind and actions wherein we cease our approval of wickedness and justification of bad behavior. It is foremost a decisive reorientation of one's life away from the self and toward the Lord. We realize our desperate state, admit our need of pardon, and come to Jesus in a childlike manner. Jesus says that's what every human being needs to do. Not just some, not just the other people. Every human being needs to repent. We all need to change our minds. We all need, when we recognize we're off, to change our direction. To reorient our entire life toward Jesus. It really is like that analogy we started with that we're driving along. We recognize, hey, I've gone past all the wrong landmarks. I've gone too far. I need to humble myself, not keep doing this, pull over and do a U-turn and go the direction that I now see all along I should have been going. So Jesus's point here is that every human being is a sinner and worthy of death, worthy of judgment. And the need of all people then is repentance to trust in the Lord. So think about it with me. All human beings then are deserving of really every calamity. There's, there's not the idea that some people are so bad, they're worthy of every calamity. No, all of us are sinners and we really deserve any calamity that comes our way. So our question is frequently incorrect when we ask the question, why me, when a bad thing, bad thing happens? Now, it's not bad to bring that to the Lord. We have questions like that in the scriptures. Bring those things to the Lord, but it's really not the best question. If we're thinking biblically, we, we could ask this question, well, you know, really, why not me? Why not me that this happened? I mean, because I'm among sinful humanity, and I'm thankful he's rescued me from my sins, but I'm among the sinners on the earth. Why am I not having more calamity in my life? That's the more stunning question. 
Why am I not having difficulty every moment of my life? I don't deserve anything from him. His grace is so amazing. So not why me that this thing happened. Why not all the time these types of things happen to me? So Jesus said, you need to repent or you're going to likewise perish. And when Jesus talks about perishing here, it's more than towers falling down or a bad ruler getting you. But he has in view here eternal perishing. That word perish just means destruction. It's the same word that Jesus used in John 3.16. So the greatest calamity that you and I want to avoid through repentance and faith is avoiding spiritually perishing. The loss of your eternal soul in what the Bible calls hell. All will perish if they don't repent and put their faith in Jesus. So let me ask you right here. Do you see your need today for Jesus? Are you willing today to repent of the direction you've been going? Would you be willing to say to God, God, I've been wrong. I've sinned against you. I've offended you. I've neglected you. I've been apathetic and I've been running the wrong way. Would you acknowledge that and take up God's invitation and repent? Turn to him, run to him that you might be saved. And the best time to repent is right now. Now I began this by confessing to you that I don't have a great sense of direction. But spiritually, all of us share in that problem. Some of you can navigate anywhere in this building. Great. You can navigate any place without a map. Wonderful. But spiritually, all of us are terribly faulty there. But we don't think so. A lot of people, everybody generally thinks of themselves, I think I'm good. I think, I, I think I'm fine just like I am. But Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. People often think, well, if anybody goes to heaven, I'm sure among those who would go to heaven. But here's what the Bible says in Proverbs 14. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Hear that again. We, we think we're right when we're wrong. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Death. And so we have to hear the voice of the Lord. Jesus, like the voice of the GPS, saying this unless you repent, you will perish. And here's the way Jesus had to avoid perishing. Remember it in John 3 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So today, repent of your sin. Today, repent of your offenses and put your faith in Jesus alone, the one who died for your sins on the cross, the one who was raised from the dead that we just sang about, trust only in him. And now we come to the parable. This first point we've been seeing is everybody needs to repent. And now he says this, everybody needs to repent toward faithfulness and fruitfulness. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and repent toward faithfulness and repent toward fruitfulness. Look at verses six and following. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Jesus tells this simple story here in this parable about a man with a vineyard. And included in his vineyard, which would have the grapevines, he had also some fruit trees, including this fig tree. But he finds no fruit on the fig tree. He waited year after year after year, and that tree never produced fruit. And so he says, you, you need to cut it down. 
Now, that's not noteworthy. Anybody who knew anything about vineyards and trees in those days, well, that's exactly what you do. Because when you plant a fruit tree, you expect fruit from that tree. You don't put one of those in your vineyard just for the looks of it. And so after waiting the appropriate amount of time, if one of those trees is not going to yield fruit, you would take it down. That ground is too valuable to have a dead tree or an unproducing, unfruitful tree there. Let's get it out of here. Let's get a tree in that will produce fruit. Everybody understood that. But Jesus, of course, is not talking about figs at all. He's not trying to give a lesson in horticulture here or even agribusiness. He's talking about people here. Like the owner of a fruit tree expects fruit from the tree, Jesus expects fruit from his children. Jesus expects fruit from his followers. It brings to mind what happened toward the end of Jesus's ministry in Matthew chapter 21. Remember, Jesus is moving along. He heads toward a fig tree and there's no fruit. On that occasion, Jesus cursed the tree and it withered up and died there instantaneously. Again, Jesus knew that tree wouldn't have fruit on it. He's just making the same point. I expect from a fruit tree, fruit, meaning us. I expect fruit from my people. Now, what does this have to do with repentance? Jesus was just talking about repentance. And now he gives this parable where he talks about fruit from trees. Well, John the Baptist even made the connection back in Luke chapter three, verse eight. John the Baptist said to the people gathered, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So one of the fruits that God expects us to demonstrate in our lives is that fruit of repentance and all that will come with that. It starts with that big move. When you recognize your sinfulness, there was a time in your life, I hope for many of you, and if not, I hope you have the moment where you have that big moment of repentance. I'm wrong. I see I'm wrong. And then you turn to Jesus and you ask him to forgive you. You recognize that Jesus alone can save you because of his death on the cross and because of his resurrection. You repent and believe in him at last. Huge moment, life-changing, eternity-shaping repentance. But then after that, if you came to know Jesus, you've had thousands of other moments of repentance, haven't you? Every time you realize, oh, that was a bad thought, or that was a bad attitude, or I can't believe I said that, or I can't believe I resisted what God was telling me to do. All those times, every time you recognize a sin, Lord, would you, would you forgive me? I turn from that disobedience that I might obey you over and over again. And we find God's grace over and over again. Isn't it wonderful? And so God is expecting fruit in our lives, including this repentance. So let's talk for a moment here. What type of fruit, what else would God expect to see in us as his children? Not talking about figs, not talking about apples or anything like that. What other fruit in us? Let's talk about this. First of all, he would expect from us Christ-like character. Jesus is looking for us, the fruit of Christ-like character in us. Remember Galatians 5, But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. There's fruit that he expects. And the Holy Spirit can bring that fruit in your life as you yield to him. It wasn't too long ago that we walked through Second Peter together. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5, we read of these attributes that Peter says, if you have these and they're increasing, you won't become unfruitful. Hear these things. For this very purpose, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Ryrie said this, if the goal of the Christian life may be stated as Christ's likeness, 
then surely every trait developed in us that reflects his character must be fruit that is very pleasing to him. So what do you do this morning if you hear those things, that type of Christ-like fruit, and you look at your life and think, I don't have any of that. What do you do? Well, you come back to that word, you repent. You repent, repent away from sin and you return to Christ. You could repent of the apathy of not even wanting to bear fruit for him to say, Lord, I, I do now desire to be fruitful. This Christian life is not just the avoidance of the negative. A person might say, I don't know about all that fruit, but, but at least this, I don't cuss anymore and I'm not partying. We say, well, that's good because you'd pretty, be a pretty lousy Christian if you're profane with your mouth. You'd be blunting any impact the Lord's going to have in your life. And if you're living the party scene, you're not able to be a disciple of Christ. So, so great that that's no longer in your life. But, but what about the positive? What about the fruit that the Lord is looking to? Imagine with me if you actually had a fruit tree in your backyard. And imagine with me that that fruit tree didn't bear fruit, just like the parable here. And what if that fruit tree could talk to you? Now we're using our imagination. And what if you said to that fruit tree, hey, what's up? Why, why no fruit? What if the fruit tree said back to you, yeah, but, but at least I don't have ants all over me and I don't have disease and I don't have worms. You say, well, that's good. But I planted you for fruit. You know, it's, it's good that you, what you don't have on you, but I'm looking for fruit. And we don't want to have that version of Christianity. Look at all the things I don't do. But yeah, you can't look at me and find love there. You can't find patience. You can't find self-control in me. I don't have any of those fruits. So one of the things he's looking for us is Christ-like character. Here's another fruit he's looking for, service to Christ. It's another fruit, service to Christ. And I love Philippians 1, 21 and 22. These could be life verses for almost all of us where it says this, Paul writes, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me. I love Paul's perspective on life. So, so right, we take it up. That idea that my life, what's it all about? It's all about Jesus. And when I die because I'm in Jesus, that's going to be so much better. That's gain. But until then, every moment of this life is about Christ. And my desire is, notice his words, fruitful labor. Just want to bring glory to God in everything that I do. So are you defining your life that way? Would you say, oh, I'm looking forward to heaven. That's going to be gain. But until then, Christ, it's all Christ. Fruitful labor for Christ. I want to serve him like that. So Jesus calls us to be not only faithful, but he calls us to be fruitful. If you were with us last time, we were in a different parable. It was the parable of the watchful servants. And remember in that parable, Jesus says we're to remain dressed for action and we're to have our lamps remaining lit. We're to be serving until our master comes for us. And that beautiful promise Jesus gives that when the master comes, he's going to actually bless us. He's going to reward us in these amazing ways. And how wonderful is that? But we want to be those faithful, fruitful servants. So again, asking you, are you directing your time and your energies while you wait on Christ to come again? Are you directing those into his kingdom? Are you seeking to bring glory to Christ in every area of your life? Could you say that's the aim of your life? Fruitful labor for him until he comes. Sid Mazel was a member of our church and in 2005 left here to go serve in Central Asia, taking the good news to that part of the world. And if you don't know the rest of her story in 2008, she was kidnapped and killed by folks there where she went to serve. And so tragic, but yet, but her life really does exemplify what we're talking about here. I just want my life 
to bear fruit for Christ. If you knew Sid, and many of us knew her well, very humble, godly woman, knew it wasn't about herself. In fact, I want you to hear how she asked this church to pray for her as she went out in 2005. She said in March 2005, please pray that I will live by faith and not by fear. That I will focus my heart on God and his sufficiency rather than my situation or my inadequacy. Please pray that I will hunger and thirst after righteousness. That my greatest desire and passion will be to please and glorify God with my life. And that I will have a deep hunger for the word and for prayer. Please pray that God will provide ways for me to build relationships with women in the city where I'll be living. Please pray that God will already be working in the hearts of women that I will meet to cause them to be dissatisfied with empty religion and give them a hunger to know who Jesus really is. And that he will bring many of the women and whole families to faith in Christ. Please pray that I will be bold in my witness, taking advantage of every opportunity the Lord gives me. Thank you for your prayers, Sid. What a, what a great example of what we're talking about. Just, just want the Lord to be glorified. Go wherever he says to go. Not focusing on my inadequacy. I just need God to do this through me. Want to offer that to him. Well, we're to be looking for fruit in our lives and we will offer it to the Lord. Another way is, and Sid references it here, I want to bring other people to Christ. That's a fruit that we long to have in our lives. Lord, I don't want to come to heaven empty-handed. I want to bring people with me. Paul spoke that way when he wrote to the Romans in Romans 1. He talked about how I want to come to you preaching the gospel that I might reap some harvest among you as well as the other places. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to the Corinthians. He says, I planted there, Apollos watered, but God is causing the growth. Notice he used that same agricultural language. I want to bear fruit. I want to see God do that. And you and I feel the same, same way. I want to share the gospel. I want to spiritually reproduce that we can offer fruit to the Lord. And then this one, praise and worship. Another fruit that Jesus is looking for in our lives is a life of praise and worship. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do you know that praise and worship is not optional. Do you know that? It's not a matter if you like to sing. It's not even a matter of do you like that particular song. Anything that Chip has a sing in here or Jim has a sing at eight o'clock, it's going to be theologically sound and correct. So these are just vehicles to express some of our joy in the Lord. So, so are you one who understands, you know, I must sing to the Lord. This is what I do. Now I've met people through the years who feel like they're too mature for singing. I remember one person told me years ago, he said, you know, I don't need music. When I come to church, I don't need me. Other people need music. I don't need it. And I think he was trying to impress me with how theologically sound he was, how, how in the doctrine. I'm in, I'm in the meat of the word. But that very word talks a lot about singing. Christians are singing people. We of all people have so much to sing about. And we just had a great time singing here. By, by the way, I don't even know if I need to say this point in this service. I heard you more than I heard the praise band today when we were singing. It was awesome as we're getting ready. So, But somebody here needs it probably. So, because I think about it, if you won't sing to the Lord, what is that? Now, again, on a given Sunday, you might have a splitting headache. and you, I just can't. I just can't. You, it may be just a big victory that you showed up at church and you can't sing that particular Sunday. But if you have a life where that's just, I don't sing in worship. I don't do that. I think, I think, I'm trying to think of exceptions, but I think that would be sin other than when you're sick on a rare occasion, you know? Because why wouldn't you give God the glory that he's due? I want, you, I want to just show you the scripture doesn't make singing and 
is optional. Ephesians 5.19, we're told, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So we're singing songs from the heart. I, as you know, I'm, a, I'm an introvert with many of you, shy person. I'm not a performance singer. I get that. So, but at the same time, the Lord is due worship from my lips. That's why I have a mouth and, and lungs to praise him in my life and my, even with the singing. And so I understand you, you may have to kind of grow in this area, but start singing. If it helps you look above the praise band, just look at the words that are up there. Just, I'm just going to focus on that. Once you get the hang of the song, you can close your eyes so you're not distracted by anybody, if that helps. Once you get the hang of the song, you can look at the floor if you need to. But not singing, not rejoicing in God is just not an option for a Christian. This is fruit that God expects from us. How about another just proof to this in case somebody needs some nudging? Psalm 150. Psalm 150 commands praise. Listen to it. Praise the Lord. That's a command. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath, that's you, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So we are to be fruitful in all these ways and more. But what would render us from being fruitful? like this? What would keep us from bearing fruit like this? Well, one reason is being lost. So if you think of the, about these ways that we're supposed to bear fruit and you say, I, I just don't have any of that in me. What, what's wrong with me? It could be that you've never been saved. You're still a dead tree and there's just no mystery why there's no fruit there. But here's the good news. You can repent today and you can just acknowledge, Lord, I'm like a dead tree. I don't want to be this. Would you make me new? And this is why we're celebrating a very kind, merciful, loving God. If you come humbly and ask him to forgive you, he will forgive your sins, save your soul, and he will change you into a fruitful tree. But one of the reasons you might not see fruit in your life for some would be because you're still lost and you need to be saved today. And God would save you if you come and ask Jesus. But then another reason why you might not be fruitful is prolonged immaturity prolonged immaturity. So I did a little reading on fig trees this week in preparation for this. And I learned that the first year of planting a fig tree, you don't expect figs from it. That's to be expected. Second year, same thing. It, it would be very unlikely that a, a young fig tree is going to produce in the second year. But in the third year, you could begin to expect fruit there and in the years that follow, if that is indeed a healthy tree. And so it's understandable. Somebody becomes a new Christian. They have to have that fruit of repentance. But some of these other things, they, they might be in a growth process. But if a person goes decade after decade following Jesus, and this doesn't describe them, it could be just this prolonged immaturity. They should have been fruitful by now, but they're not. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 5, 12. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What's another reason why a person who ought to be fruitful is not fruitful? For some people, it might be fear. Fear. Like, I don't, I don't want to come out loud for Christ. I, I don't want people to know that I'm this strong of a Christian. So I'm going to kind of mute my influence. I, I don't want people to notice me and my faith in Christ. That would keep you unfruitful. But Jesus won't allow it. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus said this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp 
and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Don't hide this light. Don't hide the fruit that the Lord is bringing in your life. Share the gospel with others. Have an impact in the world for Christ. Don't be ashamed to be identified with him. But one final reason why a person might not be fruitful as the Lord intends, and it's a failure to abide in Christ. It's a failure to walk closely with Christ. Jesus talked about this in John 15. John 15, 1. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we want all this fruit we're talking about just to be an overflow of us loving and trusting and walking with Jesus every day. So let me exhort you again that you meet with the Lord for the purpose of relationship, for this idea of the Lord, I can't do anything apart from you. So I must meet you in the word every day. I must meet you for prayer. I must rise up from those times and continue to abide in you and walk with you in faithfulness in the power of the spirit that you supply for me. Because, Lord, I want to bear fruit, and it's only going to be through you. So today, would you repent and believe in Jesus Christ to be saved? Would you repent and abide in Christ? Would you repent and bear fruit today? To grow in Christ's likeness, to grow in your service to Christ, to bring others to Christ, and to give him the praise and worship that he's due. And then that word repent again. Many people don't like that word repent. Sounds so negative. Sounds like a preacher from yesteryear that somebody would talk about repent. But here's our Savior talking about it. And if you think about it with me, one of the most beautiful words in all the Bible, because it's another way of God saying, I will give you another chance. When you stop hearing the message repent, it means God's done. There's no more opportunity. But repent means I'll forgive you. Here's your chance to come back. A U-turn is available. This is the grace of God. I hope you're hearing that today. But also this parable, didn't Jesus make it clear? You don't have unlimited time. He's looking for this fruit. And in the, in the parable, the, the vine dress says, how about, how about another year? How about another short amount of time? Then you can cut it down. So don't think you have unlimited time to repent. In great mercy and love, God brought you here, or maybe you're watching from home, to hear this message to where you can respond to the love and mercy of God. Repent and run to him. He would be delighted to forgive you. This is all his idea to forgive sins if you'll trust in Jesus, if you begin to follow after him. Pray with me.